Hey, Mind Loomers, what's up? This is your host, Omar Katib, with another great episode of the Mind Loom Show. This time we got a fantastic author. Of course, I mean, they're all fantastic. Otherwise, why would they be on the show? Um, but this one was a very special one because uh, this person really inspired my interests and uh, essentially my action towards taking a career in growth, and that is Sean Ellis. Many of you know him from his incredibly famous and, and, and widely read book, Hacking Growth. So Sean Ellis, for those of you who don't know, coined the term growth hacking. And even if you are not in marketing, I know you've heard that term. And he's considered the founder of the worldwide growth hacking movement. Uh, he developed and applied growth hacking at companies like Dropbox, Eventbrite, LogMeIn, and Lookout, which led to breakout growth for these companies, all worth essentially billions of dollars today. Sean uh, also co-authored Hacking Growth, which is what this uh, podcast is going to be about, which is translated into 16 lan languages, and he is the founder of growthhackers.com, a website that many of us have come to know. Many of you don't know that Sean actually co-founded uh, it. Now, his experience as an entrepreneur um, is incredibly valuable, and he ended up founding uh, a company called Qualaroo. Uh, which is a customer insight company with clients such as Uber, Intuit, Starbucks, and Amazon, and then also served as CEO until its acquisition by a private equity firm. So today, what is he up to? He helps companies around the globe accelerate customer and revenue growth through workshops, keynote presentations, and uh, advisory roles. And his work has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Wired, Fast Company, Inc., TechCrunch, many others. Um, and so we're going to catch up with Sean to learn uh, about at least his updates and insights from the world of growth hacking since the book was published back uh, in 2017, as well as some of the things that he's up to today and where many of you can get more growth hacking insights. So there's a lot of great links in the show notes below. Be sure to check him out and follow Sean uh, on his social handles. And now on to the show. Perfect. Hey everyone, it's Omar Khatib again with the Mind Loom Book Review Show, and we have another fantastic author joining us. I'm really grateful that he can join because this is a man whose work uh, inspired thousands, maybe even millions across the world in terms of how they look at marketing and delivering value uh, to customers. Uh, but more specifically, he was a big influence in my life. Um, you know, after reading his book, uh, Hacking Growth, back in 2017, I actually took a big risk and decided that instead of being a head of marketing, I wanted to be the first head of growth in medical devices. Unfortunately, that turned out well. And so he's been very kind enough to uh, carve out some time and come on the show to talk about the, uh, his book, uh, what he's been up to uh, lately, and also you know share a lot of uh, valuable insights and advice to many young marketers and old uh, who are out there looking to improve uh, uh, their, their game. So Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Omar. I'm, I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I mean, I have plenty of questions to ask you uh, when it comes to growth, but, you know, I think something that I'd, I'd really like to start out with is outside of what we know about you from the book and what we see online, who is Sean Ellis? What's your, what's your backstory? <laughs> oh, where, where to start with that one? Um, so yeah, I, I, uh, I'd say I'm like fairly international as a, as a person. I, uh, I was born in Australia and um, moved to the U.S. when I was when I was really young, but then in college ended up doing a year abroad in in Eastern Europe and uh, in the early '90s. So the the wall had just come down, so I was in Budapest, Hungary, and moved back there after I graduated from college and and um, lived in in Hungary for seven years. And um, 
my, my major in college was international relations, got with the economics uh, focus. So I, uh, it's kind of cool now to have a book that's in 16 languages and, and do a lot of, uh, a lot of cut touring around the world with, with the book. And um, probably, probably the best seller of all the languages is in Chinese. So I've, I've been doing, doing a lot Interesting. recently. Yeah. And uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the big kind of, outside of, of really the industry. I, I think then in the industry, we actually, um, I got into a uh, tech startup in, in Hungary when I'd moved back there after, after graduating from college. And um, a friend of mine was starting a company. And, uh, and so before I joined them, I, I, I had been in, um, in sales for a little while. And so I had built up some sales commission. And so he told me what he was working on. It was 1995. It was a, an internet company. And I I got pretty excited about it. So I, I essentially put every dollar I'd earned since graduating into the business. And um, as, as a kind of my first investment ever was an angel investment, but it turns out 1995 was a really good time to put everything on an internet company. And so um, I, I ended up joining the company about six months later, but it was, it was uproar, um, which turned into wow. the biggest game company in, in the world at one point. And so I ran marketing there. And, uh, so my, my investment was, I think it was at like a, a million dollar valuation, but it, it peaked over a billion dollars. So it turned out to be a, a really good investment. But I think, I think kind of more importantly is that, that because I had kind of everything on the line, I was a lot less worried about perception of doing a good job at, at the company than I was of actually doing a good job and making sure that um, I didn't, uh, I didn't kind of have the company miss out on opportunities, but instead just really kind of maximize the value of the business. And um, so I think it, it really drove me to figure out a lot of stuff. So I initially joined in a sales role, but I was selling advertising where, where essentially there was no people on the website playing the game. So um, I wasn't going to earn much commission uh, uh, in that case. So I, I CEO and said, I feel like I should be focused on trying to build an audience on, on the website, the user base. And so he gave me a temporary opportunity to do that. And, and um, you know, we, we kind of, you know, through trial and error and lots of stuff that ultimately, you know, some of the stuff that ended up in, in hacking growth, but just, you know, gave, gave birth to a lot of just the growth hacking movement um, were things that I figured out in those, those early years of just trial and error and, um, trying to have a really good data analytics system in place to prevent waste as much as possible and really understand the uh, users on the website. And, um, but yeah, we, we ended up becoming a top 10 uh, website in the world in terms of total usage time on the site, which for an ad supported site is a really good metric. And that became the foundation of what I've been doing ever since. So yeah, that's, that's, so my backstory and how, how it led me into tech and marketing and, and now focusing more broadly on growth. That's fantastic. And what a great story. I had no idea. And that's, that really, that, that does really explain a lot. Now, w one thing that I really admire is I think, you know, uh, these days it's commonplace to see in, in tech and especially in marketers that we're very much about like, how do we, how do we share value and knowledge for free? Right. But in my opinion, Back when you wrote this book, that wasn't exactly common. And a lot of things you wrote in this book, I think most people would have said, man, I'm not telling anybody about this process <laughs> at all. And I'm going to go and, and, and just, you know, do this over and over again and get extremely rich. But you took 
I guess you can call it sort of a growth minded approach um, and, and said that, you know, this needs to be shared with the world. Yeah. And so what, you know, what was the spark? Like what, what, what got you to say, Hey, I need to, we need to write a book. And, and what, what did that look like? You know, and what, where did yeah. it start really? Yeah. I would say it really predated the book by, by probably about five years, but um, yeah. So 2013, 2012. Um, yeah, so we wrote the book, we published a book 2016, 17, somewhere in there. So, so um, I, yeah, I, basically from the time I started blogging, I would say is when I, when I started to be pretty open with what I was doing and I, and I really started blogging around 2009, actually. Um, so of course, nobody read the blog in the beginning. It's kind of just like, um, but it still was useful because it, it, it forced me to crystallize my thinking. And I found that once I, once I blogged about a topic, I could talk about the topic much more easily. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I had kind of, you know, I think most things until you write them down, you're, you're sort of like 70% uh, crystallized and you're thinking about something, but once you put it on paper, it's like, all right, I, I gotta, I gotta fully form this thought. And once I'd fully formed the thought, then I could talk a lot more about it. But um, what I, essentially what I had, had found when I first started blogging, I, I, it was after the second company that I had. Uh, so, so with log me or with uproar, I spent uh, about five years and then, uh, and then the same group of people started a company called um, log me in. And we started both companies out of Budapest, Hungary uh, headquarters for, for uproar moved to New York. And then uh, log me in was Boston. And um you're coming off of that second one. I just, I just realized that, like, you know, I kind of did that. Did I just get really lucky here? So log me in, uh, had just filed for an IPO and, um, and I just thought, you know, did I get really lucky or, or were there some things that really made more of a difference than other things? And what I realized is that, um, in, in about the first six months of, of kind of go to market with those two businesses, that was where I felt like I personally made the biggest impact in, in the companies. And, and a lot of it's just kind of like figuring out, does anybody actually need the product that we've created? If so, who, who needs it? Who really loves it? Why do they love it? What were they using before? How do we get more of them? What prevents them from, from getting a great experience with the product? I mean, essentially, you're, you're figuring out all of these things that once you have them figured out, then, then it's really kind of just pure execution after that for a long time. And so, um, so I realized, okay, the first six months was the most important on these two, two companies that had done really well, but in 10 years, I only had, you know, like a year of first six month experience. And so if that's the most important part, how do I get really good at that stage? And the other thing I realized was that, um, you know, you go into a startup with the hope of a, of a, of a great outcome. And, uh, I, I realized that, you know, then the best possible thing had happened at these two companies, both, both companies, you know, NASDAQ IPOs, just so exciting, like all of that stuff. But the truth was, I actually didn't really like it in the later days. And so it's like, okay, that's the best thing that can happen is you get to this point where, where the team gets pretty big and you've got like all this, growth that's happening. And, and, you know, most of the time startups are going to not reach that level and probably be less exciting. And so if the part that matters the most is the upfront six months and the, you know, later stages are not nearly as fun for me as the figuring out stages, then how do I, how do I focus my experience on that upfront 
part more. And so I, I basically carved out this approach of like first six months of go to market with, with some companies. And so that's when I worked with Dropbox and Eventbrite and Lookout and a number of other companies that, um, that helped me kind of dial in more of a playbook of what to do in those early days. And so what I decided to do was, um, was actually share what I was learning through those days. And so that's kind of what led to that initial blogging was as I'm, as I'm going through this, how do I, how do I share that learning? And, and, and I did get lots of feedback from people of like, what are you doing? Why are you putting this out there? This is really valuable stuff you could keep to yourself. But I, I really optimized everything on, on, on two kind of key drivers and they were um, learning and reputation. And so the reason I focus on reputation was because with the right reputation, you get a lot more opportunities for learning. And so they, they kind of feed into each other. And so that's why I blogged it because I figured um, that, that would help build the reputation that would open the door to more opportunities. And, and that's, and that's what happened. And, and, you know, I mean, it was, I maybe left some money on the table, but at the same time, you're getting equity in these early stage companies. I think the, five of the first six companies I worked on reached billion dollar valuations. Um, like that's, that's pretty lucrative early stage equity. So it's, uh, worked out. yeah. So, so like, yeah, maybe, maybe I could have hoarded that and, and had more opportunities like that. Um, but I, but yeah, and I think it was, uh, it, it still made sense to put it out there. And the book was ultimately kind of the culmination of how do we, how do we, formalize a lot of the things that I had learned and, and Morgan Brown, my co-author had learned and, and really put together a book that, that becomes useful kind of cover to cover for, for a lot of different people. Absolutely. And it makes so much sense. And, you know, your, your philosophy and approach to, I guess your, your life and career is very similar to what you kind of woven into the book, which is, and I think this, there's a division between, um, you know, people who go into growth, there's, there's ones that really focus on more, more the hack side of, of, of growth hacking, but your, your book, when you read it carefully and you pay attention, it's really themed around um, curiosity, around learning, brutal yeah. transparency and honesty, you know, and more importantly, not getting hung up. And again, I think this is, there's a, like some wisdom in what you just said, which is, um, not getting hung up on short-term gains, which are going to lead to long-term consequences mm-hmm. and sacrificing those shiny objects early on to trying to look farther ahead in terms of what you're trying to accomplish. And the thing, you know, I'm looking at your book right now, you have a part one and part two, the part one, which is the method, you know, I'm going to read some of these uh, chapters out, you know, there's building the t- team, but then there's determining if your product is a must have, right? right? Identifying your growth levers and then testing all of this around radical transparency and learning. And then in part two, you get to the playbook, which is the acquisition, activation, retention. Mm-hmm. I feel like so many people, maybe because of the excitement around growth um, or the you know desire to like grow ridiculously, ridiculously fast to that billion dollar revenue, they skip over the wisdom and philosophy of the first principles you laid out, which is learning, radical transparency, and then testing. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, for sure. And it's, and it, you know, it really starts with that growth mindset. So the growth mindset applies both to you yourself learning, how do I keep getting better at everything? But it's also a recognition that in the company, 
everything you're doing, there's a better way to do it. And the only way to know if it's truly better is through a testing program and, and you need to have really good analytics in place. or you're going to, you're going to have some false positives where you think something's better and it's, it was actually better the first time. And, but it's, it's, so it really requires kind of a deep understanding of what's happening and then, and then a programmatic way to keep getting better in the areas of the business that matter most. Yeah. And, and, you know, that if there's one thing, cause I've, so I've said this many times on my show, most business books are, you know, they have like a few pages of insight. And then after that, you can use them like as a doorstop, but, but, you know, I can tell the value of a book at, you know, how many times I go back to it. So like yours, like it's marked up, it's, it's highlighted, you know, and as I've reread it and gone back to it, you know, the, the wisdom really shines through like one thing that you mentioned. And again, it's this theme of not only just testing for the sake of testing, but intellectual, I feel like you're, you're very intellectually curious and you, you speak to that in your book. So one area that I'm going to read directly from it, you, you say that marketers commonly make the mistake of believing that diversifying efforts across a wide variety of channels is the best for growth. As a result, they spread resources too thin and don't focus enough on optimizing one or a couple of the channels likely to be most effective. Do you feel like the, the reason that happens is because people are so interested in just testing for the sake of testing and they don't stop to really scrutinize and analytically understand what they're, what they're looking at. Yeah. I don't even know if they're testing for the sake of testing. I think a lot of times it's, it's just, uh, it's, and then they think they're doing what's best for the business or they probably wouldn't be doing it, but it's, it's, uh, it's just really easy to, to kind of just, just move on to the next thing. I, I remember, um, in, at log me in pretty early on we saw that uh that google was a was a good channel for us and um that it was just the dynamics of that market we had a competitor that was spending a hundred million dollars a year probably creating demand in that space and we we brought in a free alternative to their product and so it's really hard to pay to educate people to want a free product, but if the demand's there and we can harvest that demand and redirect it toward our much better value proposition, that would work really well for us. And so that's, that played out exactly in that manner that, you know, if they have a 10% conversion rate for everyone who's interested, what happens to the other 90%? A lot of them came to us. And so, um, so then we started thinking, okay, so Google works so well for us. What are the other search engines? And so then there was kind of like, you know, some people were still using Yahoo and some were using Bing, but then, then there was even these long tail <laughs> websites that it, like it names like find what that kind of come to my mind still. So it's sort of the post, the post info seek search engines of the, of the late nineties and Lycos. And, and so it was really Google was kind of the dominant player, but then there were a few that were still around. And so we started thinking, okay, so we need to find these high intent users. Let's go to all these different places. And, and then it was just this recognition that like, you know what, Google is so broad and big and there's, there's so much volume that could happen through Google. We're better off really getting deep in Google and figuring out how to squeeze everything that Google had to offer for us. And, and then, you know, and so that's, that's really what we, what we did. And there, there's a number of other things that actually made Google work a lot better for us. Like how do you, how do how do you, where are you losing people when they come in from Google? How do you actually, 
plug those holes in the funnel? Why are you losing people at those points? And so that, that just kind of kept giving us more and more leverage. But by, by focusing on squeezing everything that Google had to give us, we were able to scale to millions of dollars a month in spending with a three-month payback on marketing dollars invested. So it was very profitable. And, and our, our biggest uh, channels were actually just pure word of mouth because we were so focused on getting people to a good experience in the product that once they had that great experience and we had a really good free version of the product, they couldn't help but tell a lot of other people. And so it was kind of the intersection of all of these things that worked well. But I, I would say even, it wasn't even until my last year at Log Me In that I truly understood the, or, or I would say, I don't think you can ever like truly understand, but that I, that I probably significantly increased my understanding of what that growth engine looked like. And the interesting thing is that that happened one day when just kind of serendipitously, I, I uh, ended up going into a conference room with the head of product and the two of us started to just diagram, how do we, how do we think this business really grows? What, what, what are the different levers? What feeds what? And when he brought his you know, product knowledge to that conversation and I brought my marketing knowledge to the conversation, it was like one plus one equals a hundred. And we, we just got a, a much clearer vision on the business. And then it was like, gosh, if we focus on this part, that's going to make this part much easier. And, and so then we, we started to kind of bring that much more kind of coordinated test improve effort to both product and marketing. And I think that's where, that's, that's where the magic starts to happen. And, and, at Dropbox, we did that from kind of day one. And, and so Dropbox, Dropbox, you know, we still had a lot of kind of ingrained cultural things that logged me in. I, I went to Dropbox six months after I left logged me in. And, uh, and with Dropbox, it was our goal right out of the gate was create a culture of, of growth and experimentation. And um, we, we pretty quickly made it to where everyone in the company was contributing ideas to growth, running tests. And, um, and I, I think that that was a big part of Drop, Dropbox was the fastest SaaS business at the time. I think others have passed it now, but the fastest to reach the $1 billion revenue run rate. And um, yeah, and it, I, I think so much of that was just having a team that was fully aligned around growth and, and had a shared understanding of how growth worked in the business. Fascinating. You know, and, and what's interesting is, you know, a lot of what you what you just said, and especially what you find in this book, is backed actually by thousands of years of, of evolution and science, right? You know, if, when we yeah. look into the natural world, you see that the uh, organisms that, you know, evolve the fastest, right? And a lot of it through trial and, and error improve. And same with, you know, with businesses, the businesses that test. One of your uh, uh, talks, I think it's one of the most, one of your most watched talks on YouTube. And I love this slide because I didn't even know about this, but you showed a slide about Twitter and where they slowed growth and then where growth picked up in the late 2000s. Can you, can you share that story? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, I, that slide I actually created after I watched a presentation from their, um, their uh, head of product. And he, he said, you know, he went into Twitter and they, their growth had slowed down quite a bit. And, um, and he, he basically said, well, how much testing are we doing? And the, the team said, you know, we're running a couple of tests a month. And he's like, we have so much volume coming through here. We could be running 10 tests per week. And um, let's, let's just focus on 
increasing that testing velocity. He didn't say we need to fix this. We need to fix that. This is great. He just, he just literally very simply said, we need to focus on increasing that testing velocity. And so, and, 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 you know, and then he said, by this point, by this date, we essentially had, we're, we're running 10 tests per week. And so that's where I was like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go and, and take the external data on, on, uh, on Twitter and see what their growth rates were at various points and, and try to overlap those. And it was really cool that you could see literally as soon as they moved to 10 tests per week, the, the growth rate resumed at a really strong pace and, and continued for a lot of years. I don't know. You eventually it flattened back out. And I don't know if that was market saturation or he had left the business and testing went back down to zero. It's really, it's really hard to kind of get the full picture on things, but um, but it definitely was a, a great example of being able to see uh, how impactful testing was. And in fact, uh, and just in the last year, I came across a quote from Jeff Bezos where he said, our success at Amazon is a function of how many tests we run per day, per week, per month. And so, um, yeah, I think across these really successful companies, the, the velocity of testing is, is a huge driver of success in the business. Yeah, abs- absolutely. And again, it keeps, you know, it keeps circling back to what, what I think your book was really about, which is, you know, you did, pro- you provided a framework for, for, for marketers and, and sort of fathered uh, this, this concept of growth. But I think it's more around this uh, growth mindset of, of learning. And, and I think, you know, in, at least in my experience, specifically in, in my previous industry, which is med device and biotech, there's this, um, there's this love of, you know, this, this romanticized idea of as soon as we figure out the thing that works, like we just do that. And I think once you do that, you, you, you have the assumption that that's going to continue to work forever. And then you start ossifying and then, you know, you have to, you know, doing tests all the time and, and constantly, challenging your assumptions, challenging your, 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 your mental models. It, it, it really is a growth mindset. It's a habit. You have to be into it. You can't just, you know, adopt something and then say, Oh yeah, when this stops working, we'll go back to the testing thing. It sounds like this is something you have to, you have to incorporate as a discipline. It sounds like yeah, the yeah. discipline is around this huge, huge amount of discipline around it for sure. And, um, it's, uh, I, I think, you yeah, know, one of the things that uh, I've I've noticed in recent years is that, you know, I, one I I believe you know, more important than everything that we're talking about right now. I, I I believe product market fit is is by far the most important driver of growth in a business. And so one of the things I've noticed in recent years is that companies with really strong product market fit often are not real good on this stuff. On, on the on the actual kind of sophistication of their execution on their test learn program because they don't need to be and so what they're they're, they're essentially just relying on that product market fit to have pretty good growth rates instead of saying we have an opportunity with this product market fit how do we maximize against that opportunity because the, the one thing that that product market fit essentially means that there's not other great solutions that are meeting a really important need in the market. And you're, you're the first to really meet that need. And so that becomes a, a great wind in your sail for growth. But if you don't satisfy that need and, and really work to reach everyone who has that unmet need, you're going to have a ton of competition pretty soon. And so even on one of our products that logged me in, I, I used to, 
it used to drive me crazy that we would have, we would have targets on different products and one product, we, we would just be able to hit those targets so quickly that we'd then have to put all of our attention on these other products that were harder to hit, hit the numbers. And it's not surprising that within, within a year or two, the product we were hitting the numbers really easily it became harder to hit the numbers because it got really competitive. You know, others flocked to that space. And, um, you know, whereas if we were redlining against the opportunity there, we probably would have dissuaded more competitors to, to come into that space. And it would be an even bigger company today. It sold last year for $4.2 billion. So it still, it was a, it was a great outcome for, for log me in. But I, I just think, uh, I just think it's one of those things that it's, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to get a little bit um, complacent when, when things are going well, where, where the truth is that like we're, we're, we're in this for, for impact and impact ultimately leads to valuable companies, but impacts a function of not just the value you create, but how many people you get that value into the hands of as quickly as possible. And that that's, that's what creates really strong, sustainable growth engines. And so um, that's, that's to me, the, the ideal type of companies that I work with today are the ones that, um, have that really strong product market fit, but I can quickly see that they're, they're missing a lot of the really high leverage, uh, execution opportunities that if we can get them aligned around those opportunities, there's, there's hundreds of millions of dollars of value to unlock really quickly in that business. And, and so that's super gratifying when you can, when you can uh, tap into something like that. No, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I want to ask a little bit more about the product market fit. Um, are you familiar uh, with a gentleman named Mark Roberge? Uh, he was uh, HubSpot's first chief yeah. officer. Yes, yeah, actually so- just spoke in his class at, at Harvard Business School. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So so he he recently published a new ebook that he's going to turn into a book. It's a great framework called The Science of Scaling. I had him on the show uh, a couple of months ago. And, you know, he has these three phases that companies need to focus on in order to scientifically scale. And the first one is product market fit. And he, you know, when he talks about it, he, sh- he sh- shares that a lot of people, when they talk about product market fit, it's this sort of broad thing. It's like when they're happy, et cetera. And he mentioned, you know, you, you know, you, you know, he said, you know, smarter students reference uh, Sean Ellison's uh, approach to how you define product market fit. Can you, can you share with the audience? what that test is to uh, define product market fit that you, that you came up with. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a few different ways to look at it. Um, But I, I think the, 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 uh, even before I say how I kind of found a new way to look at it, I want to talk about the kind of more conventional way to look at it, which is by focusing on retention cohorts. So essentially, essentially what you're looking at is when, when someone tries the product, do they keep using it or do they stop using it? If they keep using it, you probably have met their need in a way that's better than anything else that they are familiar with, or they would switch to that other thing. And so um, almost no product, or I, I would say not almost no product is going to retain hundred percent of the people who try the product. And so what normally reflects product market fit in a company is when you attract people and at some point, you know, so you attract a hundred people to, to try your product today. If, you know, a month later, you're down to 50, two months later, you're down to 30. And then, and then eventually you end up going to zero. It means you probably didn't have product market fit for any of them. Just some were a little more patient than others. But if, if some of those users actually stick on the product long-term, 
then, then you know you have something and you can scale over time. If, you, if, if your retention cohorts always track to zero, you, you are going to eventually flatten out in your growth. It's just, yeah, the physics of growth just so just uh, will we'll show how that happens. And so the challenge with that, and particularly the early stage companies where I've, where I've worked with is what do you do while you're waiting for those retention cohorts to mature? Right. Cause it you, doesn't, that takes like six to nine to 12 months, right? Right. I mean, depending on the <laughs> usage frequency of a product, if it's a daily use case product, you might actually have a really good idea after three or four weeks, but right. If it's something that, that you're using less frequently, it can take six, nine, 12 months to see what happens with those. And so um, what I found is a, a good leading indicator that, that um, essentially it's a survey. So a survey is never as accurate as actually seeing what happens with human behavior on things. But it was simply to ask people, how would you feel if you could no longer use this product? So finding people who've tried the product and used it in the right way that it was intended to be used and then asking them how would how would they feel if if you took the product away from them and what i was looking for was i I would give them a choice multiple choice very disappointed so i'd be very disappointed if i could no longer use this product somewhat disappointed not disappointed or not applicable i've already stopped using the product Mm -hmm. and um what i was looking for was people who would answer i'd be very disappointed and and so typically what I saw is that companies that um, you know got got upwards of around forty percent or more, most of those businesses ended up being pretty successful long term. So that's why I was saying like product market fit. Even if they didn't have great execution, those businesses, you know, built value of some sort. You know, maybe it was a hundred million, two hundred million dollar outcome. Where businesses that don't have product market fit almost always go out of business if they can't find it. And so. Um, I, with that question, I was able to at least assess, okay, they have enough product market fit where I can go in and help them. That was my original goal with the question. But I, then again, in the spirit of transparency, I, I ended up pl- publishing some blog posts on it and just sharing my method on that. Now it's become a pretty popular method of, uh, of other people essentially gauging. And, and again, the, the real thing, so for me, it was like, can I go in and help them? For, for if you're a founder or early stage business, what you're trying to figure out is, do I, do I keep trying to get the product right? Or is it good enough right now where we can actually grow the business? If you have product market fit, you can grow. If you don't, trying to grow will often put you out of business. And so that, that question became really helpful um, while those retention cohorts mature to, to be able to decide, what, what do I do in the meantime? Do I, do I think I have product market fit or do, do, I, um, do I think I don't have product market fit? And depending on that, the answer to that question, it's going to really change how, how you execute the business. Got it. And, you know, just, just to kind of dig a little bit deeper on it, like for, the, uh, for myself and also the majority of, uh, of my audience, you know, we come from like sort of the B2B world. And so for us, like, you know, A, those sales cycles are longer. And then mm-hmm. B, you know, obviously the, the data isn't there as much as B2C is. And so when it takes maybe a few months to see them, sometimes you might have somebody who buys it, whether it's a SaaS product or even hardware, they might not churn for at least a year, right? Yeah. And so when it comes to asking uh, that question, surveying it, you know, do you, is it, is it time-based where you say, hey, after you, let's say, onboard a new customer and everything, you should wait 30, 60, 90 days to do it? Should you do it a full year? I mean, I, I, it's probably different yeah. for each business, but what, how would you approach I, it from B2B? 
Yeah, I, I try to take a random sample of people who've reached that. You know, sometimes it's, they've used that at least twice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then a random sample, you know, because if, if they've been using it for six months, then it, it, it's already kind of skewing the, um, the results. Like you've already churned out the 90% that might. Ah, that's a good, that's a really good point. I didn't think of that. You're right. Because if they are there for six months and they haven't churned, then it's likely that they're very happy. So it sounds like there's this happy medium, which is not right when they come on, not when they've been around for a while. There's, there's a middle point where, and I think maybe the, the, Figuring that out is just kind of going and saying historically, even if we, if we've we have let's say a total of ten or fifteen or fifty customers, the ones that came on and left, on average, when did they leave? And then figuring out where that middle is and testing at that point. That's a really yeah. good good point. But but B two B has like another challenge as well. So you take something like Slack, mm-hmm. and you say, okay, the first time they've used it, there's going to be a set of you know maybe they've even used it for for a week or two already. But there's going to be a set of people who who basically, let's say they're the only one in their company that's really using it. Like, of mm. course, they're going to say, I, I wouldn't care if I couldn't use this thing anymore. So in that case, what you want to make sure is that they, they, they've used it in the right way, which sort of says, okay, so Slack has, has reached some level of critical mass within that business. And so um, like Slack's published the numbers on, on when that happens. So for them, it's, when a team gets to 2000 messages, their long-term retention is, is like 90 plus percent. Um, so essentially that 2000 messages is gonna mean that there's enough people on the team who, who've used the product and you've got that back and forth of, of communication that's happening. And so you have to kind of figure it out in your business to, to is it a single user use case to, to where you can get value. So I, I just interviewed um, the head of product or former head of product until recently with at uh, Canva on my podcast last week, we published oh, great, it. great company. Yeah. Amazing company, but that's more of a single user use case. Like it, you know, you go in, you start designing with it, you, you figure out, okay, this is great. I'm, I'm, I'm good at my designs with this thing. It meets, it meets my needs. So it doesn't matter if 10 people at your company are using Canva or, or you're the only one. And so from that, it's going to just really be maybe once they've done their third design, then, then, I, then, they, then they are in the group that qualifies that I want to ask that question. Um, but if they've never done a design before and they just signed up, if you ask a question, you already know the answer. It's good. They, don't, they don't have enough information yet to, to care if you took it away. So that's what, what you want to kind of figure out is what's the gateway to where they've actually experienced the product in, in a valuable enough way where they, where they can make a good read on it. But yeah, you don't want to just, you could, you could easily mislead yourself if you just concentrated to people who were all retained for a long time. So I don't usually put an end date that they are, they, they've, They've used it less than six months. Maybe I should, but I, I, I usually just say they've used at least this. Give me a random sample of a thousand people who've, who've, who've used it within the last two weeks and they've reached this experience in the product. And now I'm going to ask them how they would feel. Now, the other benefit that you get in a survey that you wouldn't get from studying retention cohorts is that you can ask a lot of other questions around that. So that's where you can say, what were you doing before? 
what would you use if this product were no longer available? So you kind of start to get an idea of the, what they're comparing it to. What is the primary benefit that you get from this product? Why is that benefit important to you? You start to figure out how it maps to their, to their situation. One of my favorite questions I put on the survey is, um, have you recommended this product to someone? And if yes, how did you describe it? That oh, gives that's me, a great question. Yeah, it gives me really good language on, on how to describe the product because usually you know, founders, early stage people just are so deep in the product that they, <laughs> that, that it, it's just, you know, especially like CEOs who've been out pitching their company. When I ask them what they do, I don't understand what the heck the business does, but I read 10 of those answers to, this is how I described it when I recommended it. I know exactly what they do. And so, um, yeah, I kind of, I think of a lot of that as just your, your crowdsourcing, you're crowdsourcing the must-have value that you've created so that then you can center your execution on that. One, you can focus on, okay, what's that point of usage in the product where they get it? How do I, how do I streamline that speed to the, to the really valuable experience? And then, and then you can build a metric around the value that's being delivered. So we call that a North star metric and uh, North star metric is a really powerful part of growth. And it's it essentially becomes something that everyone in the business should be playing some kind of role in moving that metric. So it takes you out of, especially in B2B where um, I looked at a company yesterday that I was or last couple of days, I went in, I was trying to figure out what they do. And I got this little prompt that said, um, uh, you know, you're Sean Ellis. And they kind of brought up my, my Google login stuff. And, uh, and, and it's like, do you want to log into this website? And, and, and I, I thought it was cool enough that I'm like, sure. I like I, it's, it's a well-known company. So I, I was like, yeah, yes. And so I was still trying to get my head around exactly. It's a well-known company, but I was a little confused on what they did, mm-hmm. but it immediately pulled me off that page and threw me deeper in the funnel to tell what kind of business am I? And so this like, and who, whoever put that in probably in the data, they think it was brilliant because what they're seeing is they just maybe doubled their, the leads they're generating the minute they added that. But from the user perspective, it totally took me out of what does this company do to now they're just asking me for stuff. And so whoever's responsible for generating those leads, they've passed it over the sales team. They did their job. But if you had a metric that's more focused on how do we, how do we get people to a valuable experience with this product and keep them coming back long-term, then, then you might rethink instead of kind of optimizing for that, like really specific metric that's important for your team, start thinking about how, how do I maximize the number of these people who truly get a valuable experience with our product? And that's, that's what this kind of North star metric is, is about is kind of capturing how much of that valuable experience you deliver over time. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one thing that uh, I, when I've talked to other marketers, uh, you know, about, let's say a North star metric is that a lot of times they'll come up with like two or three, you know, and, and obviously that's not, an, those are North stars metric. <laughs> and Milky so, Way. <laughs> yeah. So in, in that case, I mean, I mean, how important is it just to have one? I think it's really important to have just one. It's and again, hey, can sometimes people, few, can you give the audience a few examples of those North Star metrics, sure. whether it's UC or B two B. Just just yeah, for- just 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 to add one little caveat too before we go to it. So so a lot of times people conflate 
Northstar metric with the one metric that matters, kind of a, a, ah. a related concept that's out there. Um, and the, the Northstar metric is not the only metric that matters. There's a lot of other metrics that feed that North Star metric. And so, you know, ultimately that becomes your growth model is what's the, what's the interrelationship of customer acquisition numbers, conversion numbers, or activation numbers? How does referral and, and retention and engagement, all of those things are going to grow that, that, that key metric. So it's not the one metric that matters, um, but I do think a single metric is, is really valuable. So some examples for uh, Facebook, they're looking at their daily active users. Um, you might think, okay, so that's going to be a consumer metric, but Slack actually looks at the same thing. And of course, Slack's B2B, but it's, it's kind of consumerized B2B to some degree. So not surprising that, um, so both of them, they're, everything they're doing is optimizing daily active users. And so what they're, how do you grow daily active users? Every time I activate a new customer, then that's going to help contribute to that number. But if I can get customers to come back and use more often every day, then they can contribute to it every day. So that's another way if I can get people to refer other people. And so especially with, with um, Facebook and Slack, there's, there's such a tipping point to those products that just getting someone to sign up is not going to create a daily active user on either of those products. So for Facebook, I have to have enough connections on Facebook before I get enough value to, to, to want to come back on a regular basis, you know, essentially because it's really built around a feed that is not going to have any friend information if you only have one friend on there or if you have none on there. But if you, what, so what Facebook found is that it's really around seven friends where you get enough, enough information in your feed that you're going to come back on a daily basis. Um, and I, I mentioned Slack. I think I already mentioned that their their tipping point is 2,000 messages. So, it, so in Facebook's case, how do I get someone to seven friends before they give up on the service? I have about 10 days to do that. That's what the the numbers say. So everything they're doing in the beginning is optimized. You know, I could show them a bunch of ads before they disappear. That might be sort of an old way of looking at it. Or instead of ads, I could be showing them people they may know based on the people who they're already connected with or where they went to college or high school and when they graduated. So, um, and, and it's all about getting them to that tipping point where they turn into a daily active user. And, and again, that makes, and that's such a great example because it, it, it highlights, it, it covers so many different things such as increasing usage, increasing retention, all these things. Now I understand why like a lot of, whether it's like Facebook or LinkedIn or some of these other other platforms where the next thing they do is they try and get you like, Hey, like, you know, here's some of your friends who are on this platform. You want to connect to them. Yeah. So that makes so much sense about why it's important to really ask those hard questions to get to that one North star metric, because so many things end up essentially mapping to it. And then thus you have alignment. Yeah. Wow. And then a, a couple of examples that are not daily active user examples. So um, for, for Uber, it's uh, it's weekly rides. So it's all about, how do I, what drives that weekly ride number? Again, just downloading the app is not going to drive weekly rides at all. And, and you know, there may be a team that's just all about app downloads, but if you don't get those people to actually use the product. So it's really, it turns out that it's about getting someone to enough value with the product that they get it and want to come back. And so that becomes a big pivot point, which we call activation. And so for, for Uber, it's really that first time where you summon a car it shows up, 
you get in, you get out, you don't have to pay any cash and, and you're all set. Like think, wow, that, that was pretty cool. I didn't even argue with a taxi driver about a credit card or whatever, whatever it may be. And, uh, and so, yeah, so day, uh, weekly rides is, is for Uber, um, uh, nights booked is for Airbnb. Um, I, I, I interviewed a company called Acorns on my podcast a while back. Oh yeah. Like, I know Acorns. Yeah. So they're looking at uh, active investors and for them the you know, just kind of, again, like kind of using this to, to, to map how everything works for Acorns. Um, their, their promise, the real value proposition of that product is taking millennials who typically don't invest much you know, especially early millennials who have uh, just recently graduated from college. They don't have extra funds to invest. They don't want to figure it out. And so how do you, how do you make it really effortless and not painful to do that investing? So for them, it's all about, we, we've got to get them to their first investment within five minutes of touching the platform. And so it's, it's really cool when you go through the onboarding there and you actually see how they, you're filling in the address. They're going to, they're going to, based on your location, help you fill it in even faster because they know you're going to have to hook up bank accounts. They're going to have to teach you the concept of roundups, which is, you know, if you spend 80 cents for every 80 cents, they're going to round 20 cents off and put it into your investment fund. And, and so they, they got a lot to accomplish in a five minute period that, um, but they know if they can get you there in five minutes that you're just much more likely to stay retained on the platform. So that, it just gives you an idea, like with that right North star metric and right activation metric, you're, you're a long way toward actually being able to build a sustainable growth engine in the business. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I can keep going, but we're, we're getting close to time. And I know my audience that I'm going to get a few emails, a lot of them probably who are like, Hey, can we have them back? But um, so with the remainder of the, of the time, you know, I want to make sure we also, you know, talk about, you know, some of the things that you're up to today, more specifically how individuals can follow you, companies can reach out to you, but there's a segment of the show we love to do, which is some rapid fire questions some really interesting ones. So I'm going to let you choose, which one do you want to start with first? Do you want to kind of share what you're up to with the audience today and how they can contact you? Or do you want sure. to start with the rapid fire questions? This is a choose your own adventure. So yeah. where, where do you want to let's, go? Uh, well, let's end with the rapid fire questions. So we'll, we'll, uh. We'll put some some value add on the end for everyone there, and I'll give a little bit of what I'm up to uh, before that. Perfect. So, ground rules for this is that you get to spend as much time as you want answering the question, but the faster you answer the question, the sooner we can go to another one. Okay. So, Perfect. first question to you: What was the most memorable, but also painful thing that a mentor has ever told you, and how did it change you? Uh, the, it would be actually my brother-in-law told me right when I graduated from college, join a fast growing company because it is, it is, you, it's going to open the door to new opportunities much faster than a stagnant company that, uh, you just, there's just no upward mobility in a stagnant, stagnant company. I think that the painful thing is, uh, if, if, you know, you, you, you get put into uh, uncomfortable positions of responsibility before maybe you're ready for them, but that's the best way to learn. Got it. Got it. All things go back to the growth mindset. I love it. <laughs> so next, next question for you. So as, as someone who's an author, it, there's, you know, I'm sure that there's plenty of books that you, you have read in the past, things that influence you. What, what, you know, books do you find yourself gifting or recommending most often to people that had a profound impact on you as, as, as a person? 
So I, I'm going to call one book out in particular. Um, so pretty early on in my career, I, I read an article, maybe it was Fast Company or something that uh, asked people what is the most influential book that they've read. And it was Seven Habits of Highly Effective People just kept coming up. And so I, I go back to that book a lot and I recommend that book a lot. I just think it um, there's just some really good stuff in those seven habits that have been really impactful for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So wrapping it up. So, um, you know, now that, you know, your book's been, you know, out for, for a number of years now, right. And you've spoken to many people, what's something that people get wrong most often when you speak to them, when you, when you talk to them about growth and hacking growth in the book, what's something that you feel that people get wrong most often? I'd say there's two places where they get hung up. Um, one, we don't go that deep into the data side of things in the book. And, um, and I think, I think that, that uh, you know, to be really good at this, you need, you need a fairly broad set of, of skills, including you need to go pretty deep on the data side. You could, you could lean on a data analyst, but it, you're, it's not going to be, you're not going to be able to be as curious when you rely on someone else for the answers. So that would be the one side is, is probably, probably the data side. And then the second piece is people get super enthusiastic after they read the book and then they go into an organization that's not really supportive of what they want to be able to do and they get frustrated pretty quickly. So you have to kind of think about how, how do I drive that organizational change that enables a, a person to really effectively execute growth, but because without that organizational change, pe people tend to get pretty frustrated. Last question, and then we'll, we'll wrap up with, you know, kind of what you're up to now uh, and how people can get in contact with you. So a lot of the people who listen to, to, my, to my podcast and follow my work, you know, are, you know, similar to me in the sense that they are, uh, they're T-shaped marketers, but they have a broad, you know, that middle part of the T is pretty broad. So they can design, they can do graphics, they can run experiments, you know, run them up. They can do a, a lot of these things, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say that you are talking to a younger version of yourself and, um, you're starting in a new company as, let's say, head of marketing, right? And you have, you know, somewhat product market fit, but you have to start, you know, doing all the things that come along with growth. You can only make one hire for, for, that'll stay with you for the next two years. You cannot hire anybody else. <laughs> Who do you, you know, what kind of uh, marketer do you add as your first hire to your team and why? Yeah, I mean it's so dependent on the on on the company. So what I always tell people is don't 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 hire upfront. Hire to address like the the areas where you where you have those kind of voids or bottlenecks on the team that prevent you from a high velocity of testing. So you could try to guess where that bottleneck is. That people do need to be pretty pretty dynamic in their skill set to be effective. And so you're going to know where is your where your no, no one's strong everywhere or completely, you know, uh, completely like expert everywhere. And so um, what's the, what's you have to, I would try to guess what's the thing that's going to slow down my testing. And a lot of times I've, I've seen it be the two areas where I, where I tend to see it happen the most would be um, on the analysis side. I'm running lots of tests, but we're, we're not analyzing very well. We're not thinking about needed sample size up front for a test that we want to run. We're just, we're not kind of data wise do, doing it the right way. And then secondly, um, on the design side that, that you, 
usually if you're fighting for an internal design resource, you um, that's going to slow down your testing a lot. So the, those would be my, I, I would pick one of those two areas as, as that only higher. And it would really depend on, you know, especially with things like Canva now, um, mm -hmm. am I, am I good enough on the design that we can get by without a designer? Um, or am I good enough on the data that we can get by without a data person? But so for what it's worth, the first hire that I made at log me in was uh, on the data side. The second was design. So um, I hired a guy who was uh, trained as an actuary and uh, had, had done a, some, some work as an actuary, but had just recently graduated. And he, he was really good on the data side and went on to become a VP of, at the company um, years later. And then, but I also hired a really good, fast, rapid prototype designer that was, that was also a really good hire. And, and he was only a few weeks after the first hire. Got it. And just to clarify, when you say desire, that's not just uh, designing landing pages and graphics, but also just content creation, you know, things, things to actually test with, correct? Would you, is yeah, that I mean, it, it depends on the business. Like uh, obviously if, if it's B2B, you know, you may even have some collateral and some other things, but um, I, yeah, for, for me, a lot of it really is ad creative and landing pages mm -hmm. and, um, and at least, it, it, it kind of, it depends on, uh, you know, it, it, when I was at Log Me In, I was still a VP of marketing. So I was like pushing my way deeper into the funnel, but I was still the higher up in the funnel, the more it was where I had permission to execute. And so I really never got beyond the landing pages uh, on, on execution. So I had to more collaborate with the team to deal with some of the, the deeper funnel activation issues that we had. And um so, but it, yeah, they wouldn't have trusted my, my designer who, who didn't have quite the coding skills that someone on core product team would have um, to, to touch something deeper in there. Got it. Got it. Fantastic. Well, again, th thanks for being uh, very open about your time. Let's, let's we'll kind of, you know, wrap things up, but, you know, maybe tell, tell us what you, what you're up to today. How can people get in touch, especially if it's companies that need your help and, you know, we'll kind of wrap up the show there. Sure. Yeah, so um, two main things that I, I'm spending my time on these days are, um, I mentioned I'm, I'm working with companies that have what I see as strong product market fit or indicators of strong product market fit, but um, they're, they're missing out on, on a lot of the execution opportunities, just that, you know, probably taking a, a more um, traditional way of approaching it where you know doing something that's that's more data driven and agile and and high velocity on the testing side can can make a huge difference in a company like that and so sort of ranging anywhere from say 50 to a thousand employees um, those those are the the range of companies where I can provide a lot of I mean I've done it for Microsoft and different divisions of eBay that, that would be on the bigger side there. Um, but, uh, but I think that the kind of sweet spot of what I can help is, is in, in that area. And then the, um, the other thing is, as, as I mentioned, just like having that well-rounded skill set is, is really hard. And, and the book isn't going to kind of give, give enough experience and, and guidance on the skills to make someone good in all the areas they need to be good in. And so I, I partnered with a former data scientist from Facebook to build a program called Go Practice, which um, is really about taking, taking people and, and building that kind of broad enough 
and deep enough skill set to be really effective in growth roles. And um, it's a it's about a ten week program. We we complement kind of a simulator where you're where you're actually practicing the skills you're learning with cool. live hour and a half live sessions each week. And so that's that's gopractice.io. And uh, so it's a neat program. And we actually are just releasing a skills assessment test as well that allows people to focus their time on the skills that need the most work that are really important to it and then can kind of skip over the areas where they where they may already be strong so we've got some uh some stuff it's built into the course already for anyone who who wants to go through it that way and and they can kind of navigate the course but it uh what we're going to do is start to make it available even before committing to the course um and we'll we'll announce that uh on i think we'll do a product hunt launch with that in the next uh, week or two so that's awesome yeah that'd be awesome and i'll include that all in the show notes well sean last question i'm sorry i know we got over time we got to let you go but you know i i got (laughs) i was emailed this question by by listener and they they knew that i was talking to you at this time they literally just text me and i was like okay i gotta ask the question is and i'm gonna i'm gonna read I'm going to read it directly from my phone. Um, Omar, be sure to ask Sean this question. Question, where does Sean Ellis, uh, (laughs) where does Sean Ellis slash father of growth go to read about the latest in growth? And then the, the uh, uh, dashes, he cannot say (laughs) growthhackers.com. You know, it's really more self-directed in terms of, when I go in to help a company, what, when I come off, I come across a challenge that I, I haven't kind of dealt with before, then I'm going to, usually I, I go to Google, you know, I start just Googling it and who, who has, you know, what, what are the businesses that have had a similar challenge and what, what are they doing and how can I learn from them? And so mm. I, I, I would say at least four or five times a year, I, I, I get to a point where it's like, oh my God, I need to learn a lot more about this. And then, and then I'll go on like a uh, two or three day learning binge where my to-do list ends up totally falling apart because I just become obsessed with trying to, trying to get my head around, around some, some new area that I hadn't really thought about. So maybe haven't applied it in this type of business or, you know, this is a channel that seems to be really working well for these guys. And I just don't know enough about that channel. I want to go deep to really understand that or you know, different user type, whatever, whatever it might be. So I, w- I would definitely say it's not a single place. It's, it's, it's a bunch of places where I, you know, I mean, like it's kind of one of my hacks there um, is that I will, uh, as I find different articles that I feel like are, are relevant to the thing I'm trying to learn, I'll send them all to pocket and then I'll go out and take a walk with a pad of paper and listen to, listen to the articles on pocket and, and just, just start sketching it out. So I'm, I'm, it keeps me from uh, being obsessively stuck in a dark room, but instead uh, kind of just that, that walking around helps me, helps me process it a little bit more. Probably the, the ADD part of me. I love it. I, well, the person who asked that question, you did not get the shortcut answer, but you got a so much more valuable lesson and, and part of it in a hack. So that, that is fantastic. Sean, Again, thank you so much for coming on. I know we're a little over time, but it was such a pleasure to, to have you on. We're going to leave 
uh, for the listeners below in the show notes, uh, all the links, not only to your, to your LinkedIn and Twitter, but also uh, to go practice.io among any uh, other things. So Sean, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Bye.